Hi, and welcome to The Rock's podcast. We are currently going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings. We pray that these sermons encourage your faith. Now let's join Pastor Ross as we continue studying the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we survived the holiday season here toward the end of January. We've come out the other side of jam-packed schedules gatherings and dinners and a lot and a lot of shopping and buying and buying and shopping. And now, as I said, now third week of January, whatever, uh, if you use credit cards right about now, those bills are arriving. And that can be a rather unpleasant um, experience if you did not use wisdom and self-control if you didn't resist the world's frenzied attempt to get you and, to, and me to buy, buy, and buy. I came across an interesting article about Christmas time when these kinds of articles usually appear. I saved it because I knew the rich young ruler was coming. Uh, and eventually uh, down the road he came, and here he is. And so let me read a little bit from the article to get us underway here. It says, more money, more problems? It might just be so. Americans today, compared to 50 years ago, own twice as many cars and eat out twice as much per person, have twice as much stuff, but we don't seem to be any happier because of any of it. Rather than rising levels of well-being, we've seen mounting credit card debt and anxiety, not to mention an increasing number of self-storage facilities to house the things we (laughs) compulsively buy. Now, you heard extra laughter from this section because there's a couple that own a self-storage unit. And so keep buying, people, keep buying. (laughs) Uh, The article... uh, goes on to say, it's sad that the holidays are associated with such madness. Black Friday, the annual post-Thanksgiving discount shopping spree results each year, unbelievably so, with multiple deaths and injuries of consumers trampled by crowds in stores and shopping malls. It's not uncommon for fistfights and brawls to break out in front of the bins overflowing with bargains. Oh, with that, we are underway. Now, what's fueling this fire? Well, I mean, after the fall, people, our souls, got the wrong idea as disconnected from God that we need some other kind of anchor and the best anchor we know to feel good, to feel a sense of well-being, to feel satisfied, to look to for our deliverance would be the master of money. And so we mistakenly get this idea that an increase in wealth will increase our contentment and our security and all of that. But of course we know Right? There's only one place the soul has any hope of finding any satisfaction or security. It's in the God who created us. As I prayed earlier, that God-shaped void is in the middle of each human heart. And until God takes his rightful place at the center of the lives he created, because he created you for him to enjoy him and his love forever, until that happens, there's nothing that can ever satisfy. And so nothing wrong with possessions or money in themselves or wanting a comfortable income. We, we know all of that. But when the priorities are wrong, as we're about to learn in this very famous passage, when the priorities are, are, are wrong and we're seeking uh, the stuff instead of the savior, then uh, increased wealth actually becomes a liability as Jesus so poignantly and cleverly 
really uh, drives home here in this morning's passage. Here's what I'm talking about. You know it well, most of you. Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Verse 20, teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. All right, one thing you lack, he says, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter pipes up. We've left everything to follow you. Not like that, dude. (laughs) I tell you the truth. Okay, but not like that, dude. That's not really in there. All right, I'm just going to make sure people know that. (laughs) I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers, sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in This present age, like homes and brothers, sisters, moms, children, and fields, and with them, by the way, honest persecutions, with many blessings, multiply blessings, multiply trouble. And in the age to come, though, eternal life. But many who are first now will be last then, and the last now will be first is trying to make that more understandable. And so with that is our passage. A man comes to Jesus uh, with a rather important question, how to get to heaven. And Jesus gives a masterful, uh, maneuvering and strategic reply to get this guy to understand he can come to heaven for free. He just needs to admit that he has a problem and he needs a savior. So the Lord is then going to explain to the onlookers what just happened because he walked away sad and uh, he's going to offer some motivation to them and to us not to end up like that man who walks away from the Son of God downcast, sad, and forfeiting the grace that could have been his. So now with that said, before we go any further, let me put some of you at ease about this message because you have been burdened by the misapplication of these verses. While this may be a message warning all of us about the trappings of materialism and the liability of trying to serve two masters, which we all struggle with, It is not a message designed to condemn having nice stuff for the sake of nice stuff. Uh, Nor is it designed to make hardworking Americans feel guilty or bad because they've been blessed financially or want to be blessed financially. That's not what this passage is about, and it is not what the Bible teaches, nor is Jesus referring to that now. This is a message about a so-called seeker 
who was not an honest seeker because when you're a seeker, Jesus said, you will find. So he wasn't an honest seeker and he loved his sin more than the gospel. And this is a message of how that sin, in his case, loving money more than God, uh, got in the way between him and heaven. That's the message. That's what it's about. It's not about what's in our bank accounts or in our garages. It's about what's in our hearts. That's always the case. So the bottom line for two people today, if you're an unbeliever, the bottom line while you're listening to this whole story is the, watch out for the deceitfulness of riches because it can stop you from trusting God because you don't think you need God. And if you're a believer, you, the framework you're listening with is watch out for the deceitfulness of riches lest it choke out the productivity and, and the beautiful things God wants to produce in your life because you're distracted by the deceitfulness of uh, riches, which Jesus said can be like thorns and thistles that crouch in and choke out the life of the Christian. And so we got to watch out for that. That said, we are going to jump in now. Let me explain how it kind of divides. We like to walk through the scriptures and try to kind of take little small digestible pieces. So regarding the seeker, the so-called seeker, Jesus tries to correct the man. He tries to convince the man. He tries to challenge the man. And that's the crux of the message. But it doesn't stop there. Briefly at the end, regarding his disciples, he gives two words, a word of explanation, what just happened, and a word of hope, how you and I can avoid that happening to us. So let's get underway. Let's do work. Uh, verses 17 and 18, we'll get started with Jesus tries to correct this man's thinking. All right, so it says Jesus starts on his way. He's going to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. The God-man, born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, fully God, fully man. He's on his way to lay his life down. A man runs up to him and falls on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asks. What do I have to do to get to heaven? Why do you call me good? Jesus answers, no one is good except God alone. So we're off and running. Jesus tries to correct his thinking from the get-go about two different things. Well, let's introduce you to the rich young ruler first. In verse 22, it calls him rich. In the Greek, it means lots of stuff. It means lots of possessions. And Matthew calls him young. And Luke calls him a ruler. He could be a ruler of the synagogue. He could be under the employment of Rome in some official government uh, capacity, whatever. He's, uh, therefore, he's the rich young ruler, as we like to call him. Now, although this man has a lot of money and a lot of stuff, there's a lot of camels parked there by the side of the road, right? <clears throat> and there's really nice clothes he's wearing, you know. But he's desperate, and he's uh, making his uh, taking. Uh, he's making haste to get to Jesus. He throws himself down with his knees, and on his knees, I should say. Why? He's got everything a guy could ever want, right? Ah, uh -huh. so maybe he's been hanging out in Ecclesiastes, right, where it says, "Listen." You can't control what happens to your money. You work hard, you are wise, you save it all up, and guess what? Then you die. And you know who that money's going to go to? Somebody who didn't work a day in his life for it, and is he going to be wise with it? You don't know. He could be a fool. So is that eating Adam? Like, what am I doing? Is he coming to his senses because he's feeling a lack of peace? Or is it he's feeling a lack of um, Maybe he's anxious or afraid, right? Maybe he's got a lump or a bump, right? It happens. The last time some, one of his friends got a lump or a bump, or his mom or his dad, they ended up dying. So maybe that happened, and, and, and he's in the Proverbs, and it says riches can't help you on the day of judgment, but being right with God can save you from death. 
So, so maybe that got to him. Maybe he had a friend who just stepped out on the street and then got run over by a chariot, you know? That, <laughs> and his friend was rich, right? But his friend didn't look to the left when he should have, right? And so uh, maybe that, maybe he's just lonely. You know, rich people get lonely. You know, uh, Proverbs says everyone wants to be friends with the rich guy. Everyone curries favor with a ruler. That's him. He's a rich ruler. And so maybe he's just tired saying, who, who really likes me? How can I tell who likes me from who likes my money and what I can do for them? And so he's lonely or he's anxious or he's afraid or he doesn't have peace or just plain tired. He's tired of the tyranny. The rat race, even back then, to get all those camels and supply all those camels and maintain all those camels, right? It says in his book, he's a Jew, Ecclesiastes chapter five, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied. And then it goes on to say how meaningless to think wealth brings true happiness. So yeah, serving money, it's a relentless, cruel task master. And maybe the dude's just tired. Well, that would explain why he runs. Men in the Middle East, they didn't run because they were wearing robes. And if you ran with your robe on, it exposed your little chicken legs. (laughs) (laughs) To be quite honest with you. And so guys did not run, right? And, and, and so he's running and he throws himself down. Why? He's empty. He's weary. He's lonely. He's anxious and afraid. Is he going to admit any of that? No. And had he just done that, the story would have read with a happy ending, with a, cam- with a camel doing this through the, <laughs> the eye of the needle instead of being choked off. Well, he can't admit that. His pride is too big. His head is blown up this big. It's not going to fit through anything. And so, yeah, we understand. You know, he probably heard Jesus. He says, good teacher. He probably heard Jesus say something like, whoever drinks of the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He heard that. He's like, oh, but only this deep. He wants to have it both. He wants to drink Jesus' cup and go to heaven, but have his coveting nature remain unchallenged. And so we go on. We see the urgency. We see the desperation. Do you notice the respect? Good teacher, he says. Yeah, he's a good teacher. He's God in a human body. Colossians chapter 2 says the fullness of God poured into human form. He himself said, I'm equal to God in every way. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen God. John chapter 14 verse 9. Yeah, that's a good teacher. Whatever comes out of God's mouth, wow, can you imagine the, the astonishing authority, the beautiful simplicity, the soul-freeing truth, the compelling humility, the phenomenal eloquence, the amazing power, the irresistible love with which Jesus delivers the truth the matchless moral perfection. So in every way, he's right, good teacher, but he's wrong. And Jesus sets about to correct him by saying, oh, so you get it. You're calling me Lord because you know what? A good teacher isn't going to be enough. A religious example and all of that, a good man and all of that stuff. We're going to have to get you from good teacher to Lord. So I'm just curious since there are There's no such thing as good person except God. There's no such thing as a good human being, Jesus says, except God. So are are you saying, do you get it? That I am who I've been claiming to be since you've called me a good teacher. I've been teaching you that I and the Father are one, that I existed before Abraham. He says to the Jews who brought up Abraham, he says, hey, Abraham has seen me. And he was really happy to see me. And they said, 
You're not even 50 years old. How could you say something like that, you demonized man? And he goes, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was, I am. Abraham existed 2,000 years before that conversation. 2,000 years. Jesus says, before him, not I was, but he used the Jehovah word. I am who I am. Yeah. We need to go from good teacher to good Lord. <laughs> and I mean that as good Lord. And so, you know, Jesus is going to help him now to understand that. You know, so he's saying uh, the second thing, really, uh, really, it, it, here's his first question, and it's loaded. And he says, listen, you need to rethink this thing that about goodness that nobody is good. Now, if he would have got it right there, there would be no need for to go, to continue on because he just said there is no such thing as a good person. All right, so then how can you ask what good thing must I do, which Matthew's version is, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get to heaven by being good? What do I have to do? And he, he already just said nobody's good. There's nobody good. Wow. So he has to kind of correct him first, as he did about himself, that only God is. And if you're calling me good, then you're calling me God. And that's really what it takes to save you is the lordship of Christ. And then secondly here, he's saying no one is good. And we've got to change your idea that getting to heaven has something to do with goodness. Now that's already in the Old Testament. Let me show you. Paul in the New Testament, is quoting the Old Testament, which this man had. There is no one righteous, that means right with God, not even one. There's no one who gets it. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's God's assessment on human beings apart from his goodness. Now, there are people who are less bad than others. All right, but he's saying because of sin that affects everyone, everybody has sinned and falls short of his glory. So right then, forever, Jesus just in, in a few words puts this whole thing, well, I'm a good guy, and because of my goodness, I'm a basically a good guy. He says, there's no such thing as basically a good guy. No, not one. So now that could have ended the conversation, but Jesus sees no shift in his eyes, no, no focus, no aha moment. And so now he's going to have to convince him that he's not a good person because until you, he's, he's really going to say this. And Jesus says, if you ever hope to see heaven, you're going to need a better understanding of who I really am and who you really are because I'm not merely a good teacher and you're not really rich. You're poor. And so Jesus has to convince him now that, dude, you, you don't got it made. What do you think you're, you're streamlining it to me and falling on your knees for? You got to admit that, right? You're not rich at all. You're poor. Just like Jesus' description of church people in one of the seven churches of uh, Asia. It says here, you say you're rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. Jesus speaking, but you don't realize that you're not rich. You're wretched, poor, blind, and naked. Now, this is called the offense of the gospel. The only thing that qualifies anybody to get to heaven is your sin and your confession of that sin and your trust in Jesus to save you, helpless and hopeless as you are. And Jesus has to maneuver with this guy to get him to a place where he can just see that. And embrace that and be saved by grace, faith, plus nothing. But it's a lot of work to get him there. And so now he has to convince him because he, the conversation didn't stop where it should have stopped. He could have said, oh, well, if there's no such thing as a good person, what am I asking you for the good deed I need to do? So tell me what I need to do then. And so the conversation could have gone the right direction. But instead, Jesus says, you who anybody home well is not changing. So, well, let me help show you 
that you're not a rich, good man, that you're a poor, bad man who's broken and needs to be saved. And how does he do it? He pulls out the best measuring stick in the world for goodness, the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses. And here he goes. So so we've got that for you here. You know the commandments. Don't murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Oh, Jesus is like, oh, well, that's not going to work, apparently, right? So he's going to just try to show him the measuring tape and say, do you really measure up? So, so that this guy, listen, one guy said, this is a brilliant and brutal move by Jesus to confront this young man about his sin and his need of a savior. And that's precisely why the law was given. Galatians chapter three says, God knew there's no such thing as a good person. So he gave the 10 commandments to point out our sin to lead us to Christ. Galatians chapter three, that's what it says in the Bible. He never expected us to fulfill those laws. Yes, to keep us in check, but he knows there is not one who is good There's not one who can keep these outwardly, maybe for a weekend. But inwardly, you'll break them all weekend. You know, that's the way Jesus taught. And so he says, you know the commands. So he starts listing them. And boy, Jesus does a masterful job. You don't even know what's going on here. I'm going to explain it. It's just incredible. So he says, well, you know them. Come on, you can quote them to me. If you want to be saved, Matthew's version, if you want to be saved, try keeping the commandments. Because he's expecting to say, what? Who can keep the commandments? I've broken all of those commandments in spirit as well as literal, some of them, right? I mean, he just lied he broke one of them. He says, I've kept them all since I was a little boy. Jesus could have said, well, you just broke one right there by lying. Unbelievable. And so he says, no murder, no adultery. Let's let's play the game. Jesus is like, I got to win this guy. Got to get him to ground zero. I got to break him. He doesn't feel like he needs a savior. Jesus told the story, Luke chapter 18. He says, two guys praying at the temple. One guy was praying this, a Pharisee. He was saying, thank you, God, that I'm not like all the other losers in life. That's what he said. Thank you that I'm not like a tax collector or a prostitute. I don't do things like that. I go to church every time the doors open. I tithe on all my income. You know. And Jesus said he's praying to himself. He's just in God's presence, just reciting what a good guy he is, how up, uh, uh, morally upstanding kind of guy. And then Jesus said, there's another dude in the temple praying, but he won't look up to heaven. He's a tax collector, and he knows he's done the wrong thing. He knows how wretched he can be, and is, and helpless and hopeless. And he beats on his chest, and he won't even talk to God. He just says, God, just have mercy on me. Jesus says, he's going to heaven, and this guy is going to perish, the good guy in the story. So Jesus has to break us of us thinking, oh, we got this. We're pretty good person. He's already told him there's no such thing as a good person. That should have taken him down, but now he brings out the elephant gun, and he's going (laughs) to... Gonna, and here's what he does. <laughs> oh, Jesus, don't mess around with Jesus. He's got this. He goes, six, commandment number six, commandment number seven, commandment number eight, commandment number nine, defraud. He took the steering wheel. Everybody in the conversation's on a bus, and Jesus went, six, seven, eight, nine, and everybody's like, what was that? Where's defraud in the Decalogue? There's no defraud in there. He just threw it in for this guy. He's customizing the law to crush down on this kid who got his riches, commentators say, 
by cutting corners. The word defraud means to rip people off. It means to cut corners, to accumulate wealth, not with the utmost integrity. So he's saying, yeah, I know what you're going to say about six and seven, eight, nine, and he's expecting covet, right? Because covet's coming, and he's probably wincing, like, don't get to covet. I know he's going to get to covet, and everybody here's going to know, well, I can't. I've got a problem with that, right? Covet means to grasping constantly, buy, 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 stuff, 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 and especially stuff that doesn't belong to you, like your neighbor's wife. That is actually quoted in the 10th commandment. And so look what Jesus does. Six, seven, eight, nine, defraud. <laughs> oh, wow, somebody put it this way. Let me see if I could find that. Surely Jesus has gone after this young man's conscience, customizing his approach to suit it, especially for him to touch personal, secret, private places in his heart and life where he painfully realizes he has missed the mark so that he can feel convicted and say what's true. I'm a wretched, sinful, greedy guy. I need to be saved. That's all he wants here. That's all that needs to happen but he doesn't do it. And then the best part of all for me is that he leaves out coveting. So he goes six, seven, eight, nine, and coveting is waiting. And everybody's like bracing. Oh, well, you're going to nail him now. And instead of doing that, he does defraud. And then he goes five, six, seven, eight, nine, five. Honor your mother and father. Oh, what's he saying after defraud? How are your parents doing? And here's what they love to do. The parents are going hungry. They can't work anymore. There's no social services, so they rely on their kids. And the kids, especially the Pharisees, the rulers of the synagogues, they had this thing called Corbin. And so mom and dad would say, hey, I need a little help here. And they go, Corbin. And it means any help that you would have received of me is dedicated to God. <laughs> Jesus called them out on that. Right? But so does the fraud and then the parents, it means to withhold what is rightfully due. So Jesus is doing something that most casual readers don't catch because he loves the guy and he knows if he just flips him off like that, he'll, he'll, he'll say what he said. He did it anyway, but he had to work harder. He had to work harder. Like, whoa, I didn't see the defraud thing coming. And then why didn't you go to covet? You left out coveting. Why did he do that? Show me the puzzle. Where does your eye go when something that should be there isn't there? Your eye, there's a way to say something, to draw more attention to it by not saying it where it needs to be said than saying it at all. And so he's saying, hmm, I wonder what's missing. We went to six, seven, eight, nine. What comes after nine, young man? You got a problem with that? You got a problem grasping and things? and You got a problem there, don't you? And Jesus takes his loving, great physician, all-knowing. He made the guy. He created and knit him together in his mother's womb. And he takes his finger not to steal his joy, not to hinder his life, but to heal him. And he puts it right there and says, that's the tumor that's going to cost you your life. Get rid of that thing. If it's your hand, chop it off. It's better to go to heaven with one good hand. If it's your foot, near and dear is a foot, chop it off. Is it better to go into life with one good foot than to be cast into hell, Jesus' words, not mine, with both hands and both feet. Jesus is serious about reaching this guy, and he's trying his best, and he's God. And what kills me is that this guy can still, you can sidestep God. You can go back to the verses here. He could have said, yes, Lord, I can't keep God's commands. I've sinned, I've broken, I messed up, you know? 
Is there any hope for a sinner like me? And then the whole thing would have been done. But instead, he says, nope, I've kept all of those perfectly since I was 13 and got bar mitzvot. Uh, you know, every day, every hour, every minute, I'm a good guy, good guy, good guy, good guy, 10 commandments, check. What's next? Even though the Lord had already said, no one is good. He says in the same conversation, I've kept all the commandments perfectly since I was a boy. Wow, that's a lot of audacity. I pay my taxes, I work hard, I give you the shirt off my back. I'm not a loser who needs mercy. I got it all together. That's what he says. You know what the Proverbs say, chapter 20, verse 9, it says, who could ever say that I have kept my heart pure and I'm without sin? That's Old Testament. They knew they couldn't be saved by doing. They knew they had to bring a, they were only put right with God by confessing their sins onto a, a, an animal sacrifice and having that sacrifice bear the guilt and the penalty of their sin on the day of atonement. They knew that it was being put right with God by faith. Because the prophet said, the just, if you want to be justified before God, you've got to live by faith. They knew that. He knew that, but he keeps going on and on. And so Jesus now has to bring out the challenge of a lifetime. He's going to go for the jugular now. Let's read about this as he goes from convincing him, which failed. And now he's going to go to, well, I'm going to challenge you to do something that will expose your problem. Not to save you, to expose the problem so that we can talk about saving you, not earning your way. So he says, he looks at him and loves him. One thing you're lacking, well, actually, Matthew says that he's asking, what's the one thing I lack? I've kept all the commandments. What's lacking? What's missing? <laughs> the whole point. Uh, uh, go sell, he says, Let's talk about those camels. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face falls. He went away sad because he had a lot of stuff. And so Jesus is going to work him over big time. And here's what catches me. He looks at him. You know, he's like doing the tap dance around Jesus. And Jesus is trying, how about defrauding? How about your parents? How about, whoa, you didn't see that coming, did you? Like, and nobody's good, and come on. And he says, yeah, yeah, no, I've kept them all. What else do I lack? And Jesus, the word to look at means to inspect. The all-knowing, all-loving eyes of God lock on this guy's soul and looks at him and just loves him, kind of looks at him like, You know, you get it. You get it with God looking at you like that. And his heart broke for him. His heart went out to him, you know? He saw the tug of war going on. I do, but I don't want to. You know, I want to be saved, but I don't want to lose my stuff. All of this stuff here, the, the excuses and the maneuvering and all of that, the turmoil inside, Jesus sees that and just loves him. He doesn't walk away making fun of him. He doesn't roll his eyes and go loser. He loves us. And he weeps, man, when somebody walk away from him. It is God's desire that all people come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. He's not willing that any perish, but everyone come to repentance to have life. That's the heart of Jesus. He'll do whatever it takes, but he's not going to violate this kid's will. And he's working with him best he can, so he tells him, listen, here's the thing that's in between me and you. Prove your repentance and your trust in me by getting rid of it. Not earn your way to salvation. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you can do anything to earn salvation. Like, oh, if you do this meritorious deed, then you'll get into heaven and sell all you have and give to the poor. No. He's saying to him, 
let your faith in me and your acknowledgement of your poverty show that that's connected and you embrace that and you acknowledge that. Let that show be evidenced by your selling everything. And just like it did with Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, right? Zacchaeus was a little bit like this dude, wealthy, kind of corrupt. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, self-absorbed. You'll remember the story. He wanted to see Jesus passing by, crowds there. He climbs a tree, a sycamore tree. You go by on several trips in Israel, you can sometimes go by this ginormous sycamore tree. And they say, you know, it's pretty old, probably not that old. Uh, But you go by the same area where Jesus said, hey, you, Zach, I'm going to your house for Sunday dinner. Let's do this. And so Zacchaeus is like, nobody ever liked me in the whole world. Not even my mom likes me, you know? (laughs) He was that kind of dude. Tax collectors are bad boys. And so Jesus spoke some words and he got saved. And here's what he says. He doesn't say, hey, everybody, I'm a Christian now. Nope. He says, hey, everybody, here and now. I'm just making a toast, but I want you to know here today, I'm giving half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've wronged any of you here and you hear the crowd going, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) I'll pay you back four times what I embezzled from you. And Jesus says, bing, bing, bing. That proves that salvation has come to this house. Do you see what Jesus is asking for is a show of repentance, evidence that the free gift, the connection, the thing that held his heart that got in the way of him and the Savior has been removed in his heart. And then as a result of the free gift, and the saving work of Christ, evidenced by, I don't need that stuff anymore. That's what he's asking for. And uh, that's called repentance, a change of heart. Now, I, speaking of repentance and changes of heart, that's all. I mean, there are evidences. There, there, there's not, like for example, the, the guy stops drinking, Uh, The man stops looking at porn. Uh, The womanizer becomes self-controlled. The stingy become uh, generous. The profane become morally inclined. You get the picture. I was doing a premarital. I was going to marry two non-Christians. They came to me out of nowhere. And I said, sure, I marry non-Christians because I bring the gospel, right? And so they're sitting in the office. They decided to come check the church out. They checked the church out, and they came to faith. They were living together before. And so one day, they're sitting in my office, and they said something like, um, well, you know, that won't work because how long does it get take from your apartment? You know, and I said, your apartment? What, what are you talking about? And she goes, oh, we moved out until the wedding. I said, what happened? And they said, we got saved, remember? (laughs) And I said, who told you to move out? They said, did we do something wrong? (laughs) And I'm like, no, I'm just curious. I didn't mention it to you. And she goes, did you need to? I mean, don't, don't people know that that's not what Christians do, right? And we didn't want our non Christian family who's coming. Now that we're Christians, to think that we were okay with what we were doing, we're making a statement to them. Oh, she doesn't need to say, hey, guess what? I'm a Christian to anybody. You look at her life and go, you guys were living together. You're getting married in six months. Suddenly do that. Oh, I became a Christian. You see, the changed life, the selling the camels speaks of an inner work of grace, not something that you earned. None of the things I mentioned there could save you. Stop womanizing. That's not going to save you without Jesus. You know, clean up your act. You know, there's a lot of Buddhists that live better moral lives than Christians, and there's no saving grace of Jesus involved. And so that's what he's after here. People get so confused, you know, like that's what Jesus is asking. (laughs) That would be crazy if he's asking all of us to do that. We wouldn't be able to be sitting here. 
right? He's asking. What he does ask is whatever that idol is that's separating you from him, chop it off. And in his case, it's the love of stuff. So his face falls crestfallen. We say that. Gloomy is the Greek word. He gets a gloomy face. It hits him like a ton of bricks because he realizes, you know what? I want to go to heaven, but not that bad. I want to go to heaven, but not that bad. That's precisely what saved me was I did, I did a little wagering here in my own heart. I had heard the gospel. Most of you know the story. But I'll tell you what, there came a day, June 3rd, 1979, 19 years old, you know the story. God just ambushed me and gave me a revelation. It was the scariest thing. I don't often tell that side of the story. But when I heard that voice, don't go to hell. Why will you go to hell when you don't have to? Over and over in my head, he gave me a glimpse. And I decided that nothing I wanted as a 19-year-old godless young man was worth enduring that forever. So I just, I couldn't answer the question with a, with a rational answer. Why would I? Is anything worth? And that's what Jesus says. He says, what would a man give in exchange for a soul? Meaning, what wouldn't you give up to escape hell? That's what that word means. So let's say this dude walks, and he walked, and he never repented. He's been in a place called Hades, waiting for the final resurrection for 1,900 and about 83 years. 1,983 years. I've done the math. He's had a lot of time to think about the trade that he made. Jesus' point is, what would it matter if you gained the whole world, but ended up in hell, lost your own soul? So whatever it is, whatever it is, it isn't worth that. But it was for him in the deceitfulness of wealth. So let's go on. There's the two little PSs, a word of explanation, and then we finish up with a word of hope. They're a lot shorter. I'll just sum them up for you. Let's move on. Jesus looked around. So his response that he's about to make is in response to the thoughts of the disciples, all right? Because he looks at them, he sees their faces and their reaction to the guy walking away, and now he's going to do some running commentary. And he says, listen, it's really hard for rich people in particular to get saved, right? And he says, you know what? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich guy to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the reason they, they are so amazed and say, well, then who can be saved is because back in those days, Jewish culture, that they thought that if you had possessions and a whole bunch of camels and nice clothes, that God's favor was upon you. So they just assume that these are the decent, these are the blessed, these are, this is the cream of the crop. If the cream of the crop who has God's favor can't be saved, they're doubly amazed. Look at 24 and 26. First they're astonished, then they're double astonished because of Jesus' words. And so he says it's particularly hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because I don't see their need. There's a lot of stuff out there that makes it hard to come to Christ. But he says, you know what? The deceitfulness of riches makes it super hard, especially hard, a cut above hard, because people are just duped into thinking, I don't need them. I got everything. And so they don't come to a place of, of, of crying out to him. And so... Let me just say this about stuff because people just think, you know, oh, this is all bad. And I drive too nice of a car. Or I've got too many bikes or I've got this or that and the other thing. And everybody takes this passage the wrong way. Listen, number one, God knows that, God knows Jesus said what you need before you need it. Before you think you need it, God knows what it takes. You need a house to live in with a nice roof on it, you know? 
You need a car or two to get around. Cars are expensive, houses are expensive. Maintaining houses and cars is very expensive. You might want something to cook on, you know, an appliance or two. You might want a couch or maybe even a bed. Do you want to make the bedroom nice? Do you, you're going to need, I, I don't know, how many things go on a bed, but a lot. <laughs> I mean, there's a Pad. There are all kinds of things. I only find out where once in a while it ends up in the dryer and I have to go and put it all back together. But to be honest with you, I don't even know where those things go. There's, a, there's one thing and then there's a fitted thing, which I can never do. Oh, anyway, I'm digressing. Do you know how much it costs just to get the bed in order? How about this? You've got a baby or two, and you want to eventually leave the house and see the sun on occasion. <laughs> Do you know how much equipment you need to just get yourself out of the house with a car seat, a stroller, a suitcase to put in hundreds of gadgets and accessories for little petunias, uh, you know, to be happy and to get her about. And I'm not even talking about anything else I'm talking about the bare essentials therefore we need stuff he knows we need stuff and he knows we need to be good providers to want to make a decent uh, income to pay for all of the stuff and it's a wise thing to be concerned about being a good provider it takes ambition and money and stuff and let me say this while you're here our Father knows that life isn't just about a roof and clothes and food and just be happy, okay? No. He, listen to what he says. Don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but in God who richly blesses us and gives us everything we need for enjoyment in life. So it's okay to have a vacation. They're expensive, though. And it's okay to have a bicycle or a hobby or play sports. But all of that's going to be stuff and all of that is going to cost money and you're going to want a good job and you're going to want to see that there are ample funds in your account to not only live but to enjoy life as well. And God has no problem with any of it. We all get crazy. I can drive this kind of car, but I can't drive that kind of car because it's that title. And I can have this kind of bike, but I can't have that kind of bike. And I'm talking about common sense here too, by the way. Nine out of 10 of you have common sense. <laughs> I didn't mean that bad. Common sense. I'm not saying go, go out and do exactly what the scriptures warn us against. I'm just saying, God, knows, here's, what, here's what Paul says. We use the world's things without being attached to them because this life in this world as we know it is soon passing away. Here's the bottom line. Believers have stuff, Right? But their stuff belongs to them. They don't belong to their stuff like this poor shackled dude, the rich young ruler. Amen? That's really what it's all about. Don't be deceived. So Jesus concludes with a word of hope. Let me just say this about the, the camel before I get emails. Well, why don't you explain the camel thing? All right. Here, here's what the bottom line is. Nobody, he says can get saved without God's gracious intervention. Without God, it would be like for anybody. He does say for anybody, and then he does add the rich in there, right? But for anybody, it's, it would be like the largest land animal I can think of in Israel, the camel, trying to pass through the smallest little passage that anyone could think of, the eye of a needle. That's all it's saying. Now there's a cute little hypothesis, and most of you have heard it, there is a place called the eye of the needle in a wall that's still there that it was so low that the camels couldn't get through with the stuff on it. So what had to happen is you had to take the stuff off the camel and the camel had to kneel to get through. And so taking the stuff off, kneeling to 
get through. Do you see? That's what Jesus is doing. He's so creative. He's so creative. But the bottom line is this. Without God's help, well, come on. Where would you be, right? Let me show you a picture of the camel. Look. (laughs) How else would you explain you being saved? How else? God's miraculous grace. He says, with man, it's impossible. But with God, with God drawing your heart, softening you, his kindness led you to repentance. And for some reason, maybe some in your family went this way, but you went toward him. You jumped through the needle. How did that happen? Jesus said, there's only one way that happened is that God himself was involved and made it possible for you to do what would be impossible without him. Right? So we finish up now with just the tag here, a little hope. Jesus looks at them and says, right, just what I said, uh, all things are possible with God. Don't despair. Then Peter pipes up and he says, hey, we've left everything to follow you. Not like that guy. And then, uh, and then Matthew has, he adds, so what's in it for us? He says, what's waiting in heaven for us? We left everything. Right? And Matthew, Jesus answers him and says, Well, for you guys, you'll be sitting on thrones, helping me administrate the kingdom that's coming. That's a pretty nice deal. So Peter, uh, so Jesus replies, He says, No one who's left home or brothers or sisters, mother, father, or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. And with them, then be honest, persecutions, multiplied blessings, as I said, multiplied um, troubles. And in the age to come, no worries, a place where there is none of that eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. In other words, there's, there's coming to town a great role reversal where the weak, the oppressed, the poor who know the Lord And the rich and the arrogant who don't know the Lord, the tables will be turned. And that's what that means. But let's just close with a little bit of hope, you know. And so Jesus' word of hope really is to motivate us. And so he's saying, listen, um, you who've lost something for me, as painful as it may have been, right? He's saying, I'll make it up to you a hundredfold. So for example, a dad says, and they do, if you receive Jesus, I'll never speak to you again and you are no longer welcome in this house. I have friends who that happened to. And Jesus says, no worries, I'll give you three million dads. Anywhere you go in a church where there are born again believers and you tell that story as a man, you will have all the men come down and say, I love you, I'll be your dad. I'm your dad in Christ. And he says, as one writer put it, God takes nothing from a person without restoring it to him or her in a new and glorious form. They take away your house in Romania or wherever. You go to Hungary and the Christians open their home. Whatever you lose, Jesus says, you're going to have multiplied blessings here, multiplied problems, yes, but in the age to come, isn't it going to be worth it? Eternal life. That's what he says. You have nothing to worry about that way. So he encourages us. And he pulls no punches. He says, yeah, multiplied blessings and multiplied trials, okay? But two worries he closes out with. He says to the person who says, I can't do this. I just can't give this thing up. He says, yes, you can. With God, all things are possible. And the second one, he says, well, it's hard to surrender this. And how am I going to live without it? He says, I'll make it worth your while. So those are the two answers. I can't do it. It's too big. It's too, I love it too much. And uh, He says, with God, all things are possible.
but what am I going to do without X, Y, and Z? He says, I'll give you A, B, and C, and you'll like it a lot better. Let's pray together. Father God, we look to you now, just the source of our lives. We admit, Lord, we just it's nice to have the rich young ruler as our whipping boy, <laughs> Uh, but, Lord, we, we've got some issues inside of our hearts. Lord, we want moderation. We want balance. We want to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness uh, so that we could be blessed and not distracted or choked out. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.